Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum tonight. My name is Trey Grayson. I'm the director of the Institute of Politics. We're glad to have everybody here at the Harvard Kennedy School uh, for tonight's conversation. Um, we're really pleased tonight to have uh, Joan Woodward from the Travelers Institute with us. Uh, Travelers has prepared a little a documentary that she's going to talk a little bit about, and they've been our partners in putting the event together and also hosting a reception afterwards. Uh, so please join me in welcoming uh, Joan up to the stage. She'll give a brief introduction to the, to the documentary, and we'll go from there. Joan. Trey, thank you for the introduction. Thank you for inviting us here to uh, talk about the issue and to screen uh, part of the documentary. So um, the Travelers, as you may have uh, heard of an insurance company, a very large insurance company, um, I run something called the Travelers Institute, which is our public policy operation, uh, kind of a think tank internally. Um, a couple of years ago, our CEO, became, Jay Fishman, became very, very concerned and worried about the macroeconomic picture. We are a data-driven company. We're very long-term um, in thinking. And in tumbling a lot of the numbers internally, we identified uh, the federal deficit annually at that point was well over $1.4 trillion per year. Uh, and the national debt growing. And so he wanted to do something unique, something a bit out of the box, uh, having nothing to do with actually uh, the insurance industry or our business. He felt really compelled that we, would, we should try to raise awareness about the topic of the deficit and what it means for society in general. So we partnered with public television, and uh, the documentary uh, has a two-year run on public television. You will see some of the numbers in the documentary are a bit out of date. Um, that's because our federal debt has blown up from 14 trillion when we made it two years ago to nearly 17 trillion today. So I just want to show you one slide which uh, really talks about the depth of the problem for us. Uh, these are federal revenues. The fiscal year just ended September 30th and federal revenues for fiscal 13 were 2.77 plus trillion dollars. Uh, everything we took in in taxes uh, if you kind of click forward, here's where we are in terms of the, um, the, the spending, the actual spending. And so the red box is Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, the largest entitlement programs. The blue and the other blue are domestic discretionary and defense programs. So this is basically the deficit. For the last year, it was $680 billion. It is coming down since its height in 2009 and 10. Then we want to fast forward uh, 10 years and 10 short years. Uh, if you take a look at the red box, and the red box is really telling for us, which is Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, the largest entitlement programs growing rapidly, uh, and hold everything else equal. So on this chart, defense spending and discretionary is held equal, ceteris paribus. Um, this is not what's going to happen in the real world, but it's an illustration of uh, the projected growth of entitlement spending. And if you take a closer look, you'll look at these two numbers. So every dollar we took in this year in 2013 in revenues will not be enough in just 10 short years to fund Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, which is expected to be about $2.8 trillion. So this is the crux of the problem. Uh, we thought a lot about uh, what we were doing back then, two years ago, to develop the documentary. Uh, it is now showing for two years on public television, and we have been at 43 universities like this across the country screening the documentary for students and community members really to raise awareness uh, about the problem uh, for the economy. So uh, it was independently produced, and we had no um, editorial control. 
but we're very proud of it and thrilled to be here tonight. So you will watch a 22-minute version of the documentary. Uh, it's only one-third because the full documentary is 60 minutes and it's online and we invite you to take a look. Um, and now let's roll the uh, shortened version for us. Thank you. This program is made possible by the Travelers Institute, an organization dedicated to furthering the public policy discussion about the facts of the U.S. deficit and its implications for the American opportunity. I know the consequences. I know where this is headed. And it is not a pretty picture. America can't be great if it's broke. And we're broke. There's a simple solution to the federal debt. You pay for it. I'll tell you right now, there's no easy answers to these solutions. It's going to take sacrifice. We have had the greatest economic downturn since the Great Depression. Biggest lesson from the last recession is don't have a financial crisis. By far the biggest cause is healthcare. Baby boomers are retiring as the largest senior generation America ever produced. We're going to be living longer after 65 than any of our predecessors, and we're already bigger. Each side wants to take one portion, but say it has to carry 100% of the solution. That'll never work. We are deep, deep, deep in the hole, headed down deeper, and it threatens the America we've known. A bipartisan group can sit down together and come up with solutions that nobody likes because everything you do to reduce a deficit is unpleasant. I mean, you've either got to cut one kind of spending or another kind of spending or raise taxes. Those, those are the only options you have, and nobody wants to do any of those things. Al says we've been very successful. We've achieved the pinnacle of our life. We pissed off everybody in America. <laughs> it took us four months to establish trust in our, in our commission when we started. And the theme coming out of uh, the Democrats was, who's the biggest spending president in the history of the United States before this man? Answer, George W. Bush. Never vetoed a single spending bill in six and a half years until it came to stem cell research. So after that simmered down, the other side said, but this guy, Obama, is four times worse than Bush with the stimulus and TARP and this and that. Finally, Ursula and I said, well, keep scrapping and we'll just do a two-member report, just the two of us. <laughs> well, I was on the commission. I voted for it. Even though it was the president's commission and five of his six people voted for it, the president walked away from it. 
if they were to just legislate the Simpson-Bowles language, then I think the recovery we would see would be extraordinary. About one quarter of what we did was revenue, and three quarters was in the form of spending cuts, and the sum total of it yielded $4 trillion in deficit reduction. It's the minimum amount we need to reduce the deficit in order to stabilize the debt and get it on a downward path as a percent of GDP. There's been a lot of uh, criticism of the Obama administration for not um, more fully embracing the Bull-Simpson Commission. The first thing you have to realize is the report had a significant amount of revenue contained in it and therefore had almost no chance of passing the House of Representatives, regardless of whether the administration embraced it or not. So it's a almost a, just an optics discussion of what plays better in terms of how you're presenting yourself if you embrace it or not. And that's a different discussion than it was actually going to happen if the White House embraced it. I think they were sort of shocked. You know, I mean, I think they sort of appointed this commission, hoped that the issue would go away, and they just didn't want to risk the political capital of supporting their own commission's report. used to be that when the U.S. economy went into a recession, it came out pretty quickly. And in fact, the deeper the recession, the faster it came out. What's been happening more recently is recoveries have been taking much longer. This one looks like it's going to be five years or more before the jobs come back. Well, we're going to have to be honest about jobs in this country, which politicians have not been. Those good factory jobs that used to support an entire family are never coming back. Many people think that the primary reason we've had job losses in this country is because jobs are being sent abroad. But really, the biggest source of job loss is technology. Let me give you an example of this. Think of the job of a secretary. This used to be a very important job. It used to occupy a lot of people, primarily women, and every executive beyond a certain level had a secretary. Office, Mr. D'Amico, this is Jennifer, how may I help you? A lot of those jobs are now being done by email. All the things that the assistant used to do has, in a sense, been made easier by technology. And as a result, that job no longer exists. What do we do uh, with all of those people who used to work in factories, but the jobs aren't there anymore? We need them to be working, because we're not going to have a solid democracy if we don't have a solid middle class. When people out in America that I've talked to take a look at Wall Street, they say, well, first you took our jobs, then you took our homes, and then they look at Washington, and they're saying, oh, and now you want to limit our Social Security pensions? We don't want any part of that, which is why 80% of the American people are opposed to entitlement reform. Americans, uh, in their defense, have been misled. I mean, a lot of people think, uh, that Social Security money, I paid that in. No, you didn't. You were paying for the retirees of, of 
10, 20, 30 years ago, today's young people are going to pay for you. When Social Security came in, the average life expectancy in the United States was 64. And you got Social Security at 65. Which means, you know, in a, in, a, in, a, in a funny sense, most people didn't live to see Social Security. The baby boomers are retiring as the largest senior generation America ever produced. We're gonna be living longer after 65 than any of our predecessors, and we're already bigger. The baby boom generation has taken us from 35 million retired people to 70 million retired people. We have a system that is built on the basis of having more people to pay into it than take out of it. We've gone from, in the 1950s, 16 people paying into Social Security for every one person taking out, to today where we've got two people paying into Social Security for every one person taking out. It doesn't work. Which means you need the elderly in the interests of the young to accept a change. Why should the baby boomers be putting such a burden on younger voters? People like me, frankly, will look at this and say, you know, we've got to come up with some better ways to deal with these problems or else by the time that we retire, it's going to be a very bleak picture. In 2037, Social Security will be insolvent, will be unable to meet its full obligations. At that point, the law requires that there will be an across-the-board cut. Right now, that is estimated to be 22%. People also talk about changing the retirement age, and I would be careful about that, because when you actually talk to human beings, for some, the retirement age of 67 right now is way too old. With a job is difficult, it's something they don't actually enjoy, they want to get out of. Should those lives be extended as much as, say, the professor who sits in his chair and loves to think and finds that his work is, you know, a form of enjoyment? Think about the amount of lobbying that will be done as each profession wants to classify itself as a hardship profession with early retirement. We don't have to do anything that affects today's beneficiaries or those who are coming within a few years. They should all be reassured, a deal is a deal, you're good to go. The changes we need to make there can start taking effect years in the future, but we better decide now. Everything we have suggested or any group in America has suggested to do something with Social Security doesn't affect anybody over 60. And I get the most vicious, vicious letters from people over 60 and 70 and 80. Foul. I mean foul stuff. I'm good at that. But boy, I tell you. If you mention Social Security, you are immediately attacked from the left and the right for some reason or other uh, in very hyperbolized language, which makes discussion very hard and makes progress very hard. We could uh, index the benefits to the length of life so that uh, uh, the benefits uh, went down slightly as uh, longevity increased. Why are we going to send a 
pension check to Donald Trump. The money ought to be for those people who without it are at risk of destitution in their older years. Social Security today has a cap on it of about $100,000. If we remove that cap and said that every dollar you earn is subject to Social Security tax, it's estimated the Social Security Administration would add about 13% to its revenue. You could make just a few changes in Social Security and make it good for 75 years. In 2020, simply letting the demographics run out with no change in the programs themselves, Social Security, Medicaid, and Medicare will exceed $2.5 trillion. So eight years from now, those programs alone, forget defense spending, forget discretionary spending, forget other mandatory spending, those programs alone outstrip the total federal receipts that we, will, that we collect this year. We spend more than the next 14 largest countries combined on national defense. You know, it's causing us to hollow out the country. And I'll, I'll tell you how crazy it is. You know, we have this treaty with Taiwan that will protect them if they're invaded by China. The only problem is we'll have to borrow from money from China to do it. You know? It's like crazy. And this is the dirty little secret of defense spending. These programs have remained in operation because they provide an awful lot of jobs. If you want to kill a submarine, you're taking jobs from 48 states. And we had testimony from the top defense analysts in the country who pointed out to us 51% of all federal employees are at the Department of Defense. That does not count the contractors. When we asked them, how many contractor employees do you have? They said, we can't tell you. And we asked, why can't you tell us? They said, we don't know. And I said, well, is there a range? Yes, we can tell you there are between 1 million and 9 million. That's a pretty big range. I built seven defense budgets. Uh, we didn't hide the numbers. Matter of fact, we drown ourselves in the numbers. This is the largest enterprise in the world. We've got 300,000 vehicles. We've got 300 installations. We run the largest school system in the world. Largest daycare program in the world. 350,000 kids are in daycare every day. We run the seventh largest grocery chain in the world. I mean, it's a massive enterprise. And as a result of that, the budget is large and complex. There's been an expensive set of wars, and the security requirements post 9-11 have driven up defense budgets, but only in the context of exploding budgets in general. No one should confuse the issue that our solution here is premised in reducing defense expenditures materially. You could cut them to zero, and I'm not suggesting remotely that we do, but you could cut them to zero, and our deficit would still be $900 billion. Every organization does well the things that are truly central to the organization. When I was in government and we had the Kosovo Air War, 
Within a week, we had 600 combat aircraft flown 4,000 miles to new locations, all put on bases, all able to support. We had fuel for everything. We had ammunition. We had maps. We were able to do that in just in a week. So this organization is a remarkably effective organization for the things that really matter. But when it comes to being efficient, being a, 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 a well-run business, that's not our high priority. Uh, it, it's going to have to become a higher priority. But our central purpose is to fight and win wars. In the United States, we don't have enough resources or savings to purchase all the debt that we're going to issue. In other words, we're borrowing so much to operate our government that the American people don't save enough to pay for that. We're going to have to find ways to get investment in this country besides people just covering our deficit. China's experienced a fair amount of economic growth over the last number of years, so it's got, um, it's got money to invest, and it has a high savings rate. American securities are a very safe and reliable investment. Think about the Chinese producing Apple iPads. They put it together, Apple buys it from their Chinese suppliers, and they have to send those people dollars. So they write a check for the Chinese supplier, the Chinese supplier takes that dollar, takes it to their bank, the bank then takes it to the central bank, and the central bank says, I have a bunch of dollars, what do I do? It goes out and buys U.S. bonds. And, you know, both sides, in a sense, are better off. The U.S. gets more iPads. The Chinese have some investments which they hope will retain value into the future. China owns about 25% uh, of our debt held by foreigners. They own 1.2 trillion. Japan's got about 900 billion. And there are problems with that. At some point, people are going to look at our country and say, well, you're sort of like Greece. We don't want to buy your debt any longer. Or if we're going to buy your debt, we're going to make you pay so much for it that we're basically going to bankrupt you as a country. The United Kingdom is the only country with a lot of our treasury notes that we have what you might call a normal economic relationship with. That's why I favor these trade deals. If you look at, when we make trade deals with countries, we negotiate it hard, we try to make it mutually beneficial, and we don't have big trade deficits with countries we have specific trade agreements with. But if you have a relationship with China and Japan, let's say, and they're your bankers and you've got to depend on them to buy your debt, it's very difficult to enforce any principles of reciprocity. Admiral Mullen, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said, uh, the national debt is the number one national security threat. Uh, why would he say that? He is, he's a military man. He is saying it because he understands the dependence of the United States on foreign lenders. Half of our debt now is being financed abroad. That puts the United States in a more vulnerable position. That's doubly bad for America. It's bad for a couple of reasons. First of all, that's a trillion dollars we can't invest in this country, in education or in infrastructure or in research to create the next new thing. But it's also a trillion dollars that is going to be invested in Asia to educate their kids, to build their infrastructure, to create the next new thing over there so the jobs of the future are there, not here. 
That's nuts. At some point here, if we stay on this course, we will find out what the effect is when the world loses confidence in the American currency. And it will be cataclysmic. Everyone likes the idea of sacrifice in the abstract, but when they're actually asked to make sacrifice themselves, they, they balk. Politicians are going to have to overcome that resistance from the public if they're going to really tackle it. The number one problem in solving the debt threat to the United States is public opinion. When you ask the American people, they say, yes, get the deficit and debt under control. When you ask them the specifics, they reject nearly everyone that would be necessary to actually resolve the problem. So for example, they say don't touch Medicare and Social Security and the other healthcare accounts. That's 60% of federal spending. They say, and by the way, don't touch defense. That's another 20% of federal spending. So now you're left with 20% of federal spending to work with. When you ask them the specifics, you wanna cut education? No. Wanna cut veterans? Absolutely not. Do you wanna cut parks? No. You want to cut uh, research on energy to reduce our dependence on foreign energy? No. The one thing by a majority that they say they are support reducing is foreign aid. Foreign aid is 1% of the budget. We're borrowing 40 cents of every dollar, and they say the one thing they're willing to do is cut 1 cent of every dollar. Hey, that's a big disconnect. Everyone realizes that there's a long-term problem. The way to solve that problem, you've got to tackle the revenue side of the equation, you've got to tackle the spending side of the equation. If you want a balanced budget again, you have to get it the way we got it last time. You've got to get it by cutting spending, raising revenues among those who've benefited most and can best afford to pay, and with economic growth. Right now, we can't think about two or three years from now. We can't afford to do that for our kids. We're going to be okay two or three years from now. We're going to come out of this recession, maybe not to where we were before. But what we really have to think about is where we're going to be 20, 30 years from now for our kids. There's that old Winston Churchill saying, right? Uh, America eventually does the right thing after trying everything else. It may take an election or an election and a half, but really the whole process of trying to put the issues before the people so that they themselves get a good sense of the choices they have to make. I think that process is starting. I'm not giving up on democracy. I don't know what the alternative is. Uh, if you say a democratic government can't solve this problem, then you're saying we need a dictatorship? I don't think so. For the U.S., nothing is impossible. We've just got to face the bloody hard truth. We've got to start with facing the truth and fixing that. Because once Americans get onto execution and fixing stuff, they're unstoppable, absolutely unstoppable. This program is made possible by the Travelers Institute, an organization dedicated to furthering the public. Right, now we're going to invite our panel members to come up and join us. We're going to talk a little bit about the issues raised 
in the documentary, as well as a little bit of a focus on some of the intergenerational issues that were talked about uh, and hinted about in the, in the documentary. Um, I just wanted to quickly go um, down the line. We'll do a quick introduction. In your program, you get more full introductions, uh, but I wanted to give a, a quick introduction to everybody. Linda Bilmez is a Kennedy School professor. Uh, she's the Daniel Patrick Moynihan Senior Lecturer in Public Policy. And we like to say most importantly, she was a former member of the IOP Student Advisory Committee when she was an undergraduate here at Harvard. So she's one of ours. Uh, we're glad to have you here. She's no stranger to the forum. Uh, Meredith Bagby uh, was Harvard class of 1995, was still a friend of mine back in college, and was an IOP fellow in 2004, and actually started working on this issue uh, in college and after college. And I remember flipping on the TV one time, and there you were on CNN and talking with Ross Perot and all this, that back into the 90s before the students were, well, about the time freshmen in college were born. Uh, uh, Nick uh, Troiano is the co-founder and communications director for the Can Kick Back, uh, which is a grassroots organization focusing on trying to engage young people in this issue. Um, Rob Romasco is the president of AARP, one of, if not the largest member organizations in America. Are you guys the largest? The largest outside of Com Communist yeah. Party in China. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty big. Um, Rob is the top volunteer uh, official with AARP and was elected president a few years ago. Uh, and Joan, you met earlier when she introduced the documentary. So now we're going to begin a little conversation. Um, Joan, you talked a little bit about why um, you all did this. Do you want to add any, now that we've seen the documentary, do you want to add anything uh, about, about the film or the topic and uh, maybe how it's been received as you've gone around, because uh, you said you've gone to 40-something campuses. Yeah, we've been to about 43 campuses. Um, and um, what's really interesting, I think, to us is kind of the, um, the lack of really awareness about the depth of the problem and students and what it might mean for students, whether it's student loans or getting a job which is obviously very important, and how actually the macroeconomic trends in the deficit and debt uh, affect that for them. And so it's been really fun to see kind of people say, wow, I didn't know that. And um, again, just trying to bring uh, a shed a light on the issue for, um, for young people is really important to us. Um, and uh, we've been thrilled to be able to do it. And again, partnering with public television has also been ter terrific. But, um, it's a bit outside the box for a big company uh, like us to sponsor such a film. Um, but the other interesting part of it was everyone in this documentary, uh, from Bill Clinton all the way down to, to, well, to every politician who wanted to do this with us, uh, it was really interesting because I think they also felt there was a lack of awareness of, of the facts of the issue. So uh, we're thrilled, thrilled to be on this ride. Unfortunately. Uh, the problem has not been solved or even addressed in a major way, and so we might be doing this for several yeah. years to come, looks like. Al Simpson, who was featured prominently, not only was a former IOP director, but he was actually here in the forum, I think, two weeks ago, uh, talking about this issue in a way that only Al can. Terrific. He's a lot of fun. Um, Meredith, you work with the IOP on the annual report of the United States of America, and something you started um, back when you were a student and you've been going on it. Um, tell me a little bit, tell us a little bit about that and maybe what's changed since you started that project, or what hasn't changed? Right, I, what hasn't changed, unfortunately, <laughs> is, is sort of the theme of what I wanted to talk about. So I just want to say thanks to Trey for having us all here, and uh, to Joan for bringing a terrific documentary, which I highly recommend you see all of it. It's, it's really great. Um, but you know, as Trey said, I was an undergraduate here uh, in the early uh, 90s, and I did something called, a, I wrote something called the Annual Report of the US, which was 
kind of a, um, a document which meant to, which looked like a 10K, um, so it's similar to what a corporation would put together for shareholders, which the idea that we're all shareholders um, in our government and we should know how, how it spends our money. So um, sort of as an exercise for tonight, I went back and I looked at the first annual report, which we still, we still produce here at the IOP with, um, with Harvard students. And uh, I looked at fiscal year 1993, which is 20 years ago. And I, I wanted to figure out what has changed and what continues to be problems. So you know, back then, the debt, as an example, was about between three and, and four trillion dollars, which seems really quaint <laughs> when you consider that the, the debt is now 17 trillion dollars. Uh, we, when we looked at unfunded liabilities back then for Social Security, it was seven trillion, now it's up to 20. For Medicare, it was uh, four to five, now it's over 40 uh, trillion dollars. So things have gotten a lot worse. Um, and uh, you know, back when I was an undergraduate here, I had Marty Feldstein as my professor and uh, Benjamin Friedman, and they both warned us that we were mortgaging our future with current consumption. And today, uh, students have Marty Feldstein and Benjamin Friedman, and they talk about how we are mortgaging our future uh, for current consumption. Only now, instead of saying we've been doing it for 10 years, they say we've been doing it for 30 years. So I think it's quite humbling when, you, when you've been in this debate for as long as I have and some of the people here have, to think we haven't really moved the needle very much, have we? And the reason we haven't is exactly what the documentary talked about, which is sacrifice in general everybody agrees with, but when it comes down to your own personal life, sacrifice is hard uh, to get and hard to extract from folks. And so I would be interested, you know, and I hope we're gonna talk about it here, is how do we move the needle when we haven't for 30 years? And how do we get people on board, both the, the, uh, the, the public at large and also our politicians to start thinking about the long term and thinking about not just their constituents, but the population as a whole? So thanks. Great, thanks, Maria. Um, Nick, as we know, the millennials are uh, the largest generation on the, on the planet, the largest generation in the history of the US. Uh, obviously, they're gonna have a, um, be impacted greatly by the, the debt, um, but are a tough group to mobilize, a tough group to, uh, the Obama campaign does a very good job of getting them to vote, uh, but nobody else has really seemed to do a very effective a job of getting them engaged as part of a governing coalition or an issues-based coalition. Um, that's what your group's trying to do. Why, why did you guys form the group and what do you hope to accomplish? And right, and also I uh, thank you for having me tonight and the can kicks back here. Um, well, I think we exist to help solve that problem. And the reason why we haven't made progress over the last 30 years is because those who have the most at stake and the most incentive have really been missing from the decision-making table. And so it was a few years ago where I sat sort of in an audience like some of the students here tonight, saw some of these charts and realized, wow, this is the future of the country that we're inheriting. You know, where are all the young people? You know, we should sort of be in the streets screaming about this. And uh, there really wasn't anything happening. And over the next few years, uh, what some friends and I saw was Congress and the uh, President continually kick the can down the road, so to speak. Every time there was an opportunity to make some progress on this issue, to cooperate and find some common ground, they simply delayed tough choices. We realized, well, we are that can. And they keep kicking us. And so we need to have a robust and sustainable campaign to sort of kick back at Washington, which includes uh, voting and making this a top issue. It includes issue advocacy. I think eventually it includes getting more young people sort of running and elected to office as well. Uh, from our perspective, we spent the last year both building our grassroots constituency, we went from five frustrated young people a year ago, to about 20,000 today. And we've also done some of our own research in the, into this issue. And what we found was that the imbalance and the inequity in the federal budget is much larger 
uh, and worse than a lot of uh, folks like to suggest. You know, we talk about a $17 trillion debt. We don't talk about the $200 trillion in unfunded promises and obligations that our government is making uh, through programs like Social Security and Medicare that people like me and those young people in the audience will eventually have to inherit. So we need to make uh, progress on this issue because what, the one thing that's really clear is the longer we wait to deal with it, the bigger the burden is going to be on millennials and future Americans. Um, as you heard, Rob represents uh, the largest organization in America. Uh, his members, not all of whom, because it's open to Americans over 50, mm -hmm. so not all of whom are um, collecting or eligible, collecting Social Security and Medicare, but they've worked many years and paid a lot of taxes and played by a lot of rules and uh, are obviously really worried as, as they either approach or enter retirement that those benefits are there for them. And AARP has been one of the most effective voices in protecting and promoting their interests. Uh, Rob, what do you think about the documentary and some of the things you've heard today? Um, I think one of the things that is so important in this conversation is that we have a full discussion of the facts as opposed to less selected data. Um, for instance, I think you're right. People don't understand the depth of the problem. They also don't understand Social Security. Everyone thinks it's for retirees. It's a family insurance program. One third of all recipients are not retirees. They're children, the disabled, and widows. So that when any one of us goes to work at the age of 30 and doesn't come home because you were killed in an accident, Social Security survivor benefits come into that household and stabilize that family. If God forbid you're disabled, so I think people have to realize that Social Security is, in fact, a family insurance program that provides income stability for everybody from the time you start paying when you're 21 till if you're happy enough to wait till you're 70 to get the maximum benefits. The second thing is that I think one of the things that really is troublesome here is we're edging towards something called generational conflict. And I would argue that we really need generational solidarity. Because I think the, the numbers are correct as far as they go. Uh, and, but the sacrifice, you are going to inherit those programs. And our members care about them being there for you and for Meredith. Because all the politicians promise they'll be fine. I'll be fine. They all promise that. that. That way they don't get us all angry, both of us. But they, they scare you and say it's bankrupt. It's not bankrupt. So Social Security is a family insurance program. And, and our members are so concerned not only with their own well-being, but most importantly for their families and their children. That's why over three million of them are full-time parents for their grandchildren. That's why the backbone of our long-term care system are people over 50 that supply about 42 million caregivers in America. They do it for free, they do it, and if I went around here, I could probably find a caregiving situation every one of your families that's near and dear to you. So the, the issue that somehow Older folks are uh, somehow insensitive to needs and families, I think is a, is a dangerous mischaracterization. So how do, you, how do you think about this problem? Well, Social Security, we, we need to redesign our retirement system, not Social Security, but our retirement system. Because when it started, Social Security was based on a three-legged stool. Social Security is supposed to provide a minimum, minimum guaranteed benefit, your, your, your pensions, and your personal savings, personal responsibility. Well, well, let's look at those three legs. Social Security's there. Pensions, I was in Northern Virginia where there's a lot of military and government folks. And 
had a nice conversation with 300 of my, our, our members and said, how many of you have pensions? They all raised their hands with big, big smiles on their faces. How many of your children have pensions? Not one person in the room raised their hand. So pensions are gone. Your 401k, well, half of the folks that work have no access to any program, pension or 401k. And personal savings, hmm, how's that working out for us? Well, how about the median wage in this country has gone down every year for the last 10 years? So how, how can people save when the wages are going down? We've witnessed the largest income redistribution in, in the last 70 years, up. In the last five years, the top 10% of us have guarded 105% of the economic gain. 105%. That means the other 90% have garnered, have gone south. So there is generational solidarity here, but it's about what kind of country do we want? What are we willing to pay for? And how do we think about it? Not from old versus young, but across a broad society of creating opportunity. And let me just finish on Medicare, which is so important. The biggest driver in that budget is not Medicare. It's healthcare costs. $2.7 trillion we spend as a country, which if it were an independent nation would be the second largest economy in the world. On a per capita basis, we are 50% more expensive than any other country in the world. But we must have the best healthcare system, right? Well, when you kind of look at the ratings, we're number 37. We're beating the pants off Cuba and Slovenia, but we're not delivering societally our health care. And by the way, up until uh, the Affordable Care Act, 50 million people were outside the system. And the rate of health care inflation drives the Medicare cost, drives the defense budget. When you talk to the defense analysts, their fastest rising cost is not those incredibly expensive lenses systems, it's healthcare costs for both the VA and the defense people. So I think we have to start focusing on what are the real drivers, what are the role these programs play. And I'll lastly say, uh, most people have, don't really grasp it until you're there. The average Social Security benefit's about $14,000, $15,000. So when I get to talk to, as I was in Chicago this morning with sort of the upper 1% and give a talk and say, all those that want to live on $14,000, raise your hand. They don't rush to the podium and say, sign me up. Social Security provides about 100% of income for about one in, one in three recipients. It's well over half of people's income for about two out of three recipients. The average Medicare recipient, which is kind of universal for all folks over 65, and everybody applies for Medicare, and that's about 99.9% .9 of Americans actually sign up for Medicare. The average income is about $20,000. So before we, we have to understand how these programs work, who they affect, how they affect families. And the last I'll say is, I had a pretty you know, aggressive conversation the other day with, with an individual who used some kind of interesting language about the greedy geezers. And I said, well, let's think about the following. If you reduce the benefits, the need doesn't go away. 
We still have to go to the doctor. We still have to pay the utility bill. We still have to buy food. So where does that burden fall? Nine out of 10 times it will fall on our families. And one of the things that most people, as I travel around the country, talk about is they're so concerned about their family and their children and not being a burden to their children. So there's a, this is a much more complex situation than sort of the one-dimensional. The, the facts as we've seen them are correct. The budgets are there and projections are there. But I think we have to think about it more broadly in terms of you know, what kind of country do we really want here? And finally, you know, Nick's team makes a great point when they look at the federal budget in terms of how it's allocated toward sort of senior folks versus young folks. And that's a significant dis uh, dif distance. But when we look t totally across the country, total investment between senior programs and those for children are about equal. And the reason is we finance our Social Security and retirement system federally, and we invest in our children locally. So when you step back and you look at all the taxes we pay, federal, state, and local, and the expenditures we make, federal, state, and local, the total expenditures are roughly even, roughly even. And that doesn't even begin to talk about the $775 billion in Social Security benefits last year generated $200 billion in taxes, direct tax revenue to the federal government, the state government, especially to the local governments where most of us pay local taxes or schools. My kids have been out of, out of the house for 13 years and I'm still happy to pay that money to keep a good education in Fairfax County. So it's a complicated problem. It's real. We have to get after it and not kick the can down the road. But we have to look at it in a much broader context than simply solving a math problem. Linda, we were talking uh, in the green room um, about this issue and I asked, you know, your thoughts on how you might begin this, and you said, yeah, I, I think I'm gonna bring a little bit different perspective. Why don't you, different thoughts, why don't you share that with, uh, with the audience? Okay, well, you know, hi everyone. How many of you are undergraduates here? Okay, well, welcome to the, welcome to Harvard, Harvard College uh, undergrads. I think, I do have a slightly different perspective. Um, I was in the Clinton administration, and I was part of, I was the number three person at the Commerce Department during the time when we actually balanced the budget for um, the only time since uh, World War II. Uh, and, you know, so I have some perspective on the um, difficulty of doing that and, and how we did it. Um, but the first point I want to make and, and, uh, is that the people who are working on this and who are putting together the documentary and, and the, you know, uh, Simpson and Bowles are very, very concerned, as many of us are, about the future of the country. And so I don't want anything I say to be taken out of the context of that um, because I'm just going to try and put it in a slightly different perspective with some different issues. So um, the first one is to think a little bit about how did we get into this situation? How did we get a big debt? Because I don't think we should think about the debt, eliminating the debt as the end goal here. The question is, uh, it, it's a means to an end. You know, what, what did we actually buy um, that kind of went on the national credit card? And what we bought um, was a, a, a um, any debt is always going to be the difference between revenues and spending. So uh, as you're aware, we have spent a lot of money on the two wars which we're still spending. We have 80,000 troops still in Afghanistan. 
We deployed two and a half million troops to Iraq and Afghanistan. We've spent, um, we've already spent more than $2 trillion that has added to the debt. And we have another $2 trillion that will be um, spent in long-term veterans disability benefits and other veterans programs. Um, a second major part of why we have the large debt we have is because of the fact that we cut taxes so much and we spent through the tax system. So there are two ways that we can spend money. You know, I can give you each $1,000 for a tuition um, you know, grant and I just hand the money out and you get it directly. Or we can spend, which, mean, which goes on the spending side, or we can give out uh, $1,000 to your parents as a tax credit. And if I spend it that way, it lowers the amount of revenues that are coming in because they're paying less taxes because they get a tax credit. Now we have spent disproportionately, we have cut taxes and we have also done a lot of our spending because it's been politically easier on the what's called tax expenditure or the revenue side. So this um, has not only had the effect of really widening this gap between what comes in and what goes out, but it also has a very uh, unprogressive element because a lot of people don't pay taxes, so they can't take advantage of that tax credit. And for the people who take advantage of them first, they're the people who have accountants who say to them, here's a new thing you can take advantage of. And for a lot of people, it, there's a while before it even has the uptake. So it's not progressive and it decreases revenue. Um, the third uh, big area that has contributed to the debt we have is the fact that we had, of course, a major uh, recession. And during a recession, there are what's called automatic stabilizers in the system, which means that automatically, if fewer people have jobs and so fewer people are paying taxes and the revenue coming in goes down, federal spending goes up because the federal go government automatically is paying more money in unemployment insurance and Medicaid and a whole bunch of other programs which go out to the states and the localities and to individuals. So between those three things, that accounts for the vast majority. And this was a very unusual event. We haven't since World War II um, had a had a, a war spending of the, this, uh, I mean, in fact, the um, Iraq and Afghanistan wars have been more expensive than World War II, even though uh, we didn't deploy as many as a large um, percentage of our population. And we have never in the history of the United States had a war that was financed by borrowing, um, except for the Revolutionary War when we borrowed from the French. So this is totally unprecedented way of financing the wars. So when you kind of step back from that, the question becomes, if we analyze where this comes from, the question is how do we, how do we fix it? You know, what's the best way to fix it? And the single best way, the single most effective way uh, is to promote growth. Growth is the thing that means that more people will have jobs. We have 7.3% unemployment in this country now, of which a very large percentage are people who have been out of jobs for a long time, the long-term unemployed, who've been unemployed for more than six months. These are people who are 
80% have at least a high school education. They are mostly white. They are mostly, they are, are um, uh, mostly, um, I already said this, they mostly have at least a high school education. Um, and they are mostly over the age of 35. And th these are people who have all um, almost entirely been laid off in their job. So in other words, they were working, and when you see that, you know, blah, blah, bank or whatever company decided they were going to lay off X number of people, those are those people. It's difficult for them to get jobs. And so the best way to close that gap that we have is to put those people back into jobs so we create a virtuous cycle in which they are paying taxes and those taxes bring more money into the economy and the economy is then moving again uh, and the amount that we are paying out in unemployment compensation and all those other things goes down. And I would argue that our first priority, the biggest crisis facing the country now, is the fact that we are not pursuing the pro-growth policies uh, that would enable us to get back on track. Now, um, I could talk a lot more about this. Let me just make one or two points. One point is that anybody who is driven anywhere around the country um, lately knows that our whole infrastructure is crum crumbling. I recently had one of my um, three children is actually a senior at the college right now. And we had, he um, speaks Chinese and we had an exchange student from China staying with us last summer who spoke no English. And when we took him around our neighborhood for the first time, it's the first time he's ever been out of China, he looked around our nice neighborhood in Belmont and he said, I asked my son, what is he saying? And he's saying, why are the roads so terrible? The roads are terrible. The roads are terrible. <laughs> why don't they fix the potholes? <laughs> when I moved up to Kentucky, I was struck by how bad the roads are. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, you know, we are not investing in the infrastructure. And when we think about the long-term viability of this country, I mean, there is a sort of no-brainer, which is that since interest rates are so low, you can almost borrow from the government, you can almost borrow for free. And since we have so many unemployed people, and since we need to rebuild the infrastructure, and since that promotes growth, that we should be focused on that. The second quick point I want to make is that although we do have long-term structural problems, and there's no question that some of the facts that you saw in the, in, um, in the film and that you read about, particularly around the growth in healthcare um, costs and that um, the gentleman was talking about in terms of the growth of healthcare costs for the military and for the VA are absolutely right. But long-term projections of, um, of uh, the, the rate of debt, uh, the, the, the ratio of debt to GDP long-term projections are notoriously fickle. Um, we, in 2001, at the end of the Clinton administration, all the projections from the Congressional Budget Office, the Office of Management and Budget, the GAO, everybody, was that we were gonna have surpluses forever, for as far as the eye could see. And within a month after George Bush took over, and I always tell this to my students because I'm a Democrat, before he had even turned the lights on, we had an almost 20% decrease in the revenues coming in before he did anything. He had not a surplus but a deficit just because of the, um, the 2001 um, uh, uh, recession. So it's very difficult to, pro to project these things in the long term. Um, what we can project are overall imbalances and so the 
thing that we do know is that small changes in the rate of growth make a huge difference and have a long-term uh, impact. You know, finally, um, I would just say that uh, I have had the privilege of working and writing two books with Joe Stiglitz, the Nobel laureate. I've also worked, and when I was a Harvard undergraduate, my economics tutor was Larry Summers. Um, those two don't, sort of an open secret, they don't get along that well. <laughs> True. <laughs> but the one thing they do agree on, and have both spoken out on a lot, is that there's too much focus on the debt, the debt, the debt, and not enough focus on growth. I want to bring up the, the audience into the discussion, but I do want to ask a quick question before we bring them in. Um, and so I'm going to ask hopefully a quick question and maybe get some quick answers. So we've heard during the discussion, I think we teed up that, that obviously more growth would be helpful. Uh, there's a healthcare, I think everybody would agree, healthcare is something that needs to be under control. Uh, there's clearly a need for more information about uh, no matter what perspective you have. Uh, and, and probably potentially some level of entitlement reform. Uh, maybe there's not an agreement on that, but that's something that is an issue that's out there. Right now we have, um, in the wake of the last government shutdown and, and uh, debt ceiling negotiations, there's a conference committee that's supposed to be negotiating over some things. Uh, we're currently operating under a sequester. We had a super committee. We had, I call it Simpson Bowles because he's the IOP director. We had Simpson Bowles. Um, what are the chances of any of these, whether it's a growth, growth policy enacted, what are some of the chances of any of these things happening in the next year or two uh, given the state of, of Washington. Um, and if the chances are low, what are you trying to do maybe to, to advance your particular cause and get that uh, enacted? Um, and I'll start with Nick. And sure. Um, well, the last few months. That was a long question, <laughs> but I, so the answers are going to be shorter than my long question. <laughs> yeah. uh, the last few months have obviously been disheartening. So the last few years and seeing the political climate in DC, uh, we couldn't, the government shut down because we couldn't get a budget to deal with the next few months at a time when we should be looking at the next few decades, but the good news is this budget conference now exists for both parties to come together and hopefully present a proposal. Uh, the hope is that maybe they can come together and replace some of the across-the-board sequester cuts, which mostly focus on the discretionary side of the budget, the investments that we need in our future, replace that with some sensible long-term uh, entitlement reform and, and or tax reform. So I think that's where the hope is in the immediate uh, short term with the budget conference. I think uh, next year is an election year, so we don't expect much to be happening uh, in D.C., but we do hope this can be an opportunity to get candidates on the record. Are they going to be serious about this issue? How do we make generational equity a top issue that millennial voters vote on? Uh, the polling that Harvard did among millennials actually showed that 55% believe the economy is the number one issue, and of that, a substantial portion named the budget. We have to make that known to uh, the candidates because I think too often uh, the millennials are only seen as voting on social issues and those are important uh, but so, so are these economic ones to our future as well. And I think that's the pressure that we need uh, to exert there. Uh, I also want to say that um, in our view this isn't a partisan issue, it is a generational issue because the true transfer of wealth that's happening is between the future uh, taking money to pay for the present. Uh, Senior citizens and current Americans are expected to get back from the government well in excess of what they paid in taxes over the long term. That's just a fact. And the difference in that is just a tab that's going to be passed down. Now, we, can, we have to deal with that in an equitable way, and doing so not only requires bipartisanship, both parties working on this, it requires something that we call generationship. We need to have a conversation between uh, young people and old people, because our view is that if young people knew what was happening to them, 
and if older folks knew what the situation was that they're leaving younger people, both would demand serious and immediate reforms. Uh, so we're launching a generation ship campaign actually tomorrow because the problem isn't our parents and grandparents, the problem is our politicians because they are perpetuating what is a myth that uh, current retirees have earned their full extent of their current benefits. But we know that in Social Security, it's a pay-to-go system. People who are collecting now, it's the work, today's workers who are paying their benefits. And in Medicare, uh, you know, for an average wage-earning couple, this analysis was just put out by the Urban Institute, uh, they're gonna get back over $177,000 over the course of their lifetime than they've, they've paid in taxes. So there are real inequities here that need to be addressed, but we need to address them together and, and avoid, we're not stoking a generational war. Uh, because for us, when we did some polling, we just finished a 6,000 mile cross-country generational equity tour, we screened this film in 20 college campuses, and 92% of people that we polled along that tour believes that the status quo is gonna lead to a lower standard of living for our generation. That'll be the first time that happens in our history, and that's a, uh, an outcome that's sort of unacceptable for us. So the status quo is the worst option, and we need to sort of find a middle ground. I will let you respond, and we'll go, if you don't mind, we'll go to the audience. I, I think a lot of what Nick says is right. I think the, the facts are that uh, it is a pay-as-you-go system, but it's a contract we've made with each other. You know, our parents paid for us, we're gonna pay for them, you're gonna pay for me, and I'm happy to pay for you. <laughs> So I think that the Medicare thing, you know, is it correct? Because the Medicare financing is a third by taxes and two thirds from general revenue. So it's working the way it was designed. What no one anticipated was this explosion of healthcare costs at a level that, you know, is unprecedented. So if the original projections work, that ratio would be less, right? I think the other issue is that, you know, let's make sure we, what's the shiny object we're trying to focus on? Um, the transfer of, of wealth is not from generation to generation. You know, the facts are pretty clear. No one talked about the upper, you know, that 105% of gain in, ter in terms of age. Mark Zuckerberg's in there along with Warren Buffett. I didn't notice the, the age difference, but I did notice they've been very fortunate. So what are, what are the pro-growth strategies that allow us to go to full employment that allow people to work longer and take pressure off the system, right? That put our healthcare costs under control because it actually is probably crowding out investment in every sector. It's a, it's a huge tax on everything, businesses, people, and so forth. And, and how do we think about, how do we think about the actual people who are affected by these policies? And I think that's the piece that's always missing in this. And finally, the, the issue of politicians has a, is important, but when you have to pull the veil back from the politicians, who benefits? It's not the politicians, although they get lifetime employment and all that kind of stuff, but there's usually a special interest somewhere, right? So when, when we talk about tax reform, the chances are that's gonna be the, you know, that's gonna be an incredible moment, right? And, and uh, we, we are, we're nonpartisan and we don't have a PAC or any of that stuff, but you know, there's a reason there are 65,000 paid lobbyists in Washington. <laughs> and it's a very, it's a very powerful thing. So I think the idea of educating people, telling them what's in their best, helping them understand what the real facts are, 
and hoping that that will be able to overcome what is right now a dysfunctional system. I think the, the what's going to happen in the, in, the, in the budget thing is going to be very limited, very limited. I mean, the, the objective of most of the people in Washington is just get through the year, you know, not go through that. Which, which is disappointing because actually if you ask me, you know, just, just quickly, mm -hmm. I think what most people, I think the markets, I think companies who want to hire new people and invest, there's a lot of cash sitting on the side in corporate America waiting to be invested, is they want to see a grand bargain. They want to see what we saw back in the 1990s, uh, a very long-term budget deal that's big, gets enacted now, and then is phased in, reform the tax code, reform the entitlement programs, work with the sequester, but that it's a big deal that instills confidence in the markets and in companies to invest and to hire people, uh, and the rating agencies. So the rating agencies look at it and say, this is a real grand bargain compromise. And I think that's what the American people and the young generation and all of us kind of deserve, so. And that's a good note to end this part of the conversation. So let's bring the audience. We've got some microphones, we've got four microphones, uh, two on the floor, two up on the stairs. Um, here at the JFK Junior Forum, we have some rules when you ask questions. Uh, one, we're not going to filter them, so everybody who's coming up with a question on their own. But tell us who you are and what affiliation you have. Uh, if you're a student, you can identify what school, uh, what part of Harvard. Uh, second is a speech inside of a question is not a question. Uh, questions are short, and they uh, end in a question mark uh, that's readily identifiable. Uh, so um, folks want to come on up. Um, Stephen, yeah, I think Sean's going to come up and ask a question. We'll start here with Sean, and then we'll work our way around. Hi, my name is Sean Weller. I'm a freshman at Harvard College. My question is, let's just assume for a second that the politicians aren't just going to give in and, and let the system change for the sake of it. I mean, politicians always want something in return. They want to know how they can get reelected. They aren't thinking 40 years down the road. They're thinking, what am I going to do next year? How am I going to get reelected? So politically, how do we make the argument for change, and how do we get politicians to budge um, in a way that we haven't been able to yet? What's the political argument, the sort of behavioral one that will help them uh, help us? I think, I mean, I think one of the things that Simpson's goals was supposed to be was, and these commissions are supposed to be, are cover, political cover for politicians. And the idea, and why we've had so many of them, is that you know we can appoint a bipartisan commission and we can get all these people together and they can come up with the solution and then we can vote for it and we have the cover of the fact that we got this commission to do it. It's kind of like hiring a consultant if you're a business <laughs> to trim your trim your um, your budgets. So, but the, the problem is that for those commissions to work, uh, and I think they can work, I mean, if you look at, as an example, the Greenspan Commission in 1983 was a great example in terms of the, it was, it was put together to save Social Security at the time and it did and it has. Um, but you know, th for those committees to work and those commissions to work, the people who create them have to stand behind them. And unfortunately, with Simpson-Bowles, you know, the president didn't get on board um, and wasn't supportive. And so I think that you know, the idea of creating a commission is a terrific um, strategy. But for those, for those things to work, we have to have our politicians get on board. And I think that is actually the backroom kind of maneuvering that needs to happen and hasn't so far. I would just say one word, and that one word is leadership. And so when you have leadership, people will follow you, either Democrat or Republican, and you had leadership in the last grand budget compromise in the mid-1990s, which led to an enormous amount of growth once people felt comfortable that the deficit and debt issue were under control. 
which I don't think people feel comfortable today that it is. So once you have leadership on a topic like this, which is very difficult, it's hugely difficult, tax reform, healthcare reform, all of these problems are very difficult to solve, but they're solvable when you have leadership. So um, I think that's what's the ingredient when you talk about what politicians need to make themselves do the right thing. Well, I can interject, I think my yeah. word is participation too. I mean, young people I think by incentive are more, especially in our generation, more solutions oriented and future focused. We don't participate enough. In the 2010 election, uh, over 65 year olds and 24 to 35 year olds made up the same portion of the population, about 17%. Uh, seniors voted at a rate of 60%. Young people voted at half that rate, about 27%. And then you look at who gets elected after that election, 25% of the Congress was over 65. 2% was between 25 and 35%. And uh, you can even look at advocacy groups. Uh, you know, I think we're the largest one out there on, on this issue. We're 20,000 strong. We have a great seniors group out there that's 40 million strong. Um, not necessarily that these are interests against each other, but there is no uh, coalition for the future that's really speaking up. Turnout among unborn Americans is at 0%. You know, who's, who's really speaking out for them, too? So young people have to show up if we expect our politicians to act in our interest. Linda. Um, I don't, I, uh, I, I mean, I agree with Joan that leadership is um, part of the issue, but one of the questions is, is leadership for what? And one of the um, areas that I have been pushing and have become increasingly convinced needs to happen is a structural reform of the congressional appropriations process. Um, uh, Joan worked in this process for a long time, and I think that among many people in Washington, you know, certainly my impression was that the quality of the caliber of the staff um, who worked in the appropriations and the budget process on both the Democratic and Republican side were the best. I mean, they were really the best ones in Congress. There was a lot of agreement, a lot of expertise, um, you know, really very high quality, and, uh, um, you know, I think if you left um, five of them in a, in a room for an hour, they could come up with an agreed social security reform, you know, that, that would be better than um, what uh, Congress has been able to come up with by far. Um, one of the problems is that the structure of the process, which has not been fundamentally reformed in 40 years, does not enable them to see the uh, uh, mandatory entitlement spending and the discretionary spending in the same committees. So you have authorizing committees that are in charge of the long term creating the formula that decides who gets Social Security and that kind of thing. And you have other committees that get individual allocations for their budgets um, that they're responsible for kind of dishing out every year. And just human nature being what it is, you know, nobody's going to not dish out what they've got on their plate and say, oh, well, you know, I'm going to give it to this one or that one. And the whole structure doesn't allow um, even those who are the best in Congress to really have access to seeing the pie in the way that it's visible in these um, films. So, you know, I have, you know, favor a, a radical sort of reorganization, simplification, and change in the structure of the congressional appropriations process, which I think is long overdue, which might create a platform in which it was more possible for those um, who, who are knowledgeable about these things to have a bigger voice. Um, over here. Yes. 
Hi, thank you so much for having us tonight. My name is Happy Yang. I am a sophomore at Harvard College. And I am asking the official tutor question of the night. So as the American population ages, what would you say are some changes, if any, we have to make to social programs such as Medicare or Social Security to make our national budget sustainable? I'll take a whack at it. All right. Thanks, Rob. Um, first of all, Social Security should be taken out of the budget discussion. Uh, we ought to have an immediate discussion, not a kick the can down the road discussion about retirement. And let's look at all the elements there because that's what Social Security is. It's a self-funded program and needs to be treated that way. We have to make some fixes to it and we have to look at the finances. We have to look at adequacy as well as solvency. The second piece in terms of Medicare, uh, the issue continues to be healthcare costs in general. There are things that can be done in Medicare which will slow the growth of medical costs that don't affect beneficiary cuts. I'll give you one example which is kind of a favorite of mine. Medicare is the largest payer of pharmaceuticals in the world. By law, they're forbidden to negotiate with the pharmaceutical companies over drug prices. That's like telling Walmart they can't negotiate with Procter & Gamble over the price of Tide. And there are a series of other things that can help make Medicare more efficient and still not cut beneficiaries, which would, which would literally add up to hundreds of billions of dollars of savings as projected. So those are some examples. It's a question of how we want to approach it as opposed to there's nothing we can do. Anybody else have any specific uh, responses to Happy's question? Yeah, Linda. I'll let you on. Okay. No, I was just going to say, if you're, if you're really interested, there's actually a book that is put out every year, and it just came out a few weeks ago, Options to Reduce the Deficit or Reform Programs. And so the Congressional Budget Office, CBO.gov, and page by page, there's hundreds of ways to do it. Um, uh, a very simple thing, a lot of people don't know this. Um, in, in Medicare, in 1983, the Medicare payroll tax that you pay on every last dollar you make, um, that, that cap was kind of taken off. So it was, it was only taxed up to a certain amount of your, your income, your, your payroll tax uh, in Medicare was taken off. And that's 1.45% on every dollar you make. In Social Security, that tax, 6.2%, uh, stops at your first $115,000 of income. So that's what you call a cap, a payroll tax cap on that 6.2%. Um, and so if that were removed, like it was in Medicare, on every last dollar you make, that would put a lot more money into the Social Security system. So, um, and then conversely, on the spending side, there's all sorts of ways to reform how the Medicare and Social Security programs. One of them that the President has come up with and Simpson-Bowles has endorsed is changing how the CPI is calculated. It's called the chain-weighted CPI, slightly lower than the current CPI calculation, and that's on the benefit side. So a little bit of raising taxes on the, on the income side or payroll taxes if you take off the cap. Um, you can means test both Social Security and Medicare, but then that changes the nature of what the program was originally intended to be. But then again, times have changed since they were originally put into place. So there's lots of options. There's no lack of ideas and very creative ones about changing the programs. Uh, again, it's back to leadership and, and political will. So, Yeah, I mean, I would just say the Social Security and the Medicare entitlements are, are 
you know, really, really different things. You know, what, I mean, the Social Security is a really easy problem. It's really, really easy to solve. I mean, it's, it's like math 101. And, you know, in my class, we have 80 students, you know, they, for one of their questions on the exam, um, you know, have to come up with a, you know, formula, tweaking a few different levers, because you have a lot of levers in Social Security. You know how many people are gonna go in, you can look at the actuarial tables, uh, you know, you can, and the things that you can uh, adjust are the, the payout, the amount that gets paid in, the retirement age, the rate of increase, you know, and a few other things. And th that's a really easy question. Nobody ever gets that one wrong. Um, so the issue is the politics, you know, of creating um, a, a, um, a way in which people can agree on it because it's not a difficult one. The Medicare, the healthcare thing is at the complete opposite end of the spectrum. You have demand for healthcare is infinite. You have an infinite good. You know, you don't want to, you know, you, nobody says, oh, you know, I'm healthy enough. I don't really want to be any healthier. You know, I, I mean, it's a totally different kind of thing. And in economics, whenever you have something for which there's infinite demand, you know, a lot of the sort of basic rules of economics just don't fly. And that's why this is such a difficult problem. But um, as, as um, uh, there are many people, as, as you know, Joan just pointed out, you know, who have spent a lot of time, you know, looking at this, coming up with a number of proposals. A lot of proposals make a lot of sense. A lot of countries have figured this out. Most countries with much better healthcare than we have spend a lot less. You know, they typically do that by um, some combination of things that have to do with a, a stronger role for the uh, uh, point of contact provider, you know, the primary position who's more of a gatekeeper, um, some trade-off between how much choice you have um, to, you know, to choose, um, uh, some um, restrictions on the, the um, uh, you know, a, a lot less, you know, paperwork and middlemen and, and, and sort of, you know, in, you know, role for insurance company, um, as you mentioned, um, you know, much, much um, stronger controls on the um, drug prices and a lot more focus on disease management, trying to figure out what's the sort of optimal point, the optimal inflection point for diabetes or asthma or hypertension or any other chronic disease that, you know, at which it makes more sense to, in, you know, more sense to invest money at that point um, than uh, to not invest money at that point because the, the um, cost escalated the next point. So um, I, I think that, that um, to, you know, to really fix Social Security, you, you would need a president who decided they were gonna fix this because it's, it's fixable. It's a great problem for somebody to take on, a, a real leader, because it is a fixable problem. And Medicare is, is gonna take a lot of work as a society to, to try and figure out how to make it, uh, how to bend that infinite curve. I was gonna say something quite similar to that. I, I agree, I think Social Security is something that is a, is a math problem and it's something that you can, you can address quite quickly. And Medicare seems to be the thing that we're all going to have to figure out for the next 10 or 20 years. It's gonna be very complicated and it's gonna be interesting to see how the Affordable Care Act dovetails with that and if it ends up squeezing any of the costs out of the system. Um, and, um, you know, lastly, the, the biggest issue, right, is where does the political will for this come from? I don't see any political will um, to reform entitlements at all. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that, and, and that I think is, um, 
you know, we here in this room and the younger generation, um, you know, new leaders, uh, I think, have to roll up their sleeves and kind of try to tackle this problem and try to encourage people um, to focus on it. So. What I'll add is that, uh, as the um, documentary stated, you tackle this problem by dealing with benefits and by dealing with taxes. In the case of Social Security, you, you can deal with it by population growth, too. And if Washington stays gridlocked, we may have to take things into our own hands as a generation. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and before you start <laughs> making big news here tonight. <laughs> yeah. I but think he just calls for some kind of behavior that we can't discuss in it, public. It may require another baby boom, which is what <laughs> I'm getting at. <clears throat> uh, but before we even get to specific policy changes, we have to think about the context in which these changes are happening. When these social insurance programs, which are important and vastly successful, were developed, um, many seniors in the country were vulnerable and were uh, at risk of sort of life destitution after they stopped working. We look at what the trends are, and between 1975 and today, senior poverty went from 15% to 9%. Poverty among children has gone from 15% to 21%. And if you look at uh, median net worth, uh, seniors in their 60s, their net worth has increased by 60%. People's net worth under 40, median net worth since 89 has decreased by 6%. That's the first thing we have to understand when we're making changes to insurance programs and as some advocate, you know, don't touch benefits, take benefits off the table. And the second is, there is a limited pie. The more that we spend on these programs, the less we spend elsewhere. 30 years ago, we spent as much on consumption as we did on investment. Today, 64% of budget goes to consumption in the present, only 14% goes to investment in the future. And when people talk about changes to benefits, it's usually not benefit cuts. It's about slowing the growth rate of increase in benefits. Change CPI was on the table. President Obama suggested it in his budget as a, as a technical change of Social Security. That means for an average couple, their Social Security check would be $9 less in increase than it would be this year. But you'd think from the reaction to that proposal that he was proposing to end the Social Security program. Thank you. Probably gonna have time just for two more questions. I'm sure we'll take these two up so we can hit all the microphones. Good evening, I'm Zara Vakil, and I'm a sophomore here at the college. My question is directed towards Nick. I wanted to know if you had any difficulties while creating uh, the CAN Kicks Back, and if you have any advice to offer the youth who are interested in following the same path as you. Thank you for the question. So is it in creating sort of an adv advocacy organization on any particular issue? Uh, specifically this issue, if you face any problems in creating the organization. Uh, yeah, it, it, was, it was a challenge, and it took years, literally years, to get to the point where we decided we wanted to launch such an organization because the number of millennials who cared about debt to GDP, as you can imagine, is quite small. So we, we started with a small group of people, but our task was how do we make this interesting and engaging to all of our peers? How do we get them to think about an issue that really is going to crystallize a few decades into the future uh, today? And our way of approaching that was um, trying to be creative, using social media, using popular memes to get the message across. Uh, our biggest uh, hit on YouTube was getting Senator Simpson to dance Gangnam Style uh, on, on YouTube, which sent you know, 5,000 supporters our way in just a couple days. Uh, there's a challenge in um, building credibility and attracting donors and being able to sustain an organization. But I think what I found in working with people, uh, including 
great local organizers, Joe Zarella is part of the campaign and here tonight, is that we're really passionate as a generation and the more that we see politics as a means to achieve uh, something and solve problems, the more that we're going to get engaged. It's just a matter of giving young people an opportunity to do so. So I guess the lessons from the last year is just um, really persistence and uh, keeping, sort of keeping your eye on the ball and uh, what we're trying to achieve. And Chris, we could do the last question. For, I'm going to brag on Chris. He was just elected to be the forum committee chair for the upcoming year. So congratulations, Chris. Thanks, Trey. Uh, Chris Farley, I'm a sophomore at the college. So uh, there was some discussion on the panel earlier about a grand bargain, but it seems like a grand bargain isn't really in the cards for the foreseeable future. All of the people who would need to make a grand bargain have sort of said it's off the table for now. So if, you know, assuming our political situation remains relatively deadlocked for the next two, four, six, eight, ten years, how do you see this issue playing out over, over that time period? Do you think that there can be any movement towards you know, either entitlement reform or raising revenue or, or any of those things? You know, what, what's the best we can hope for in the upcoming round of budget negotiations and then going forward? I'll take a whack at that. The, up, the upcoming budget negotiations will be minimalist. The number one objective is not to go through that horrendous behavior that we no saw. Don't shut down the government. Don't shut down yeah. the government. Don't, you know, the number of phone calls that came from Wall Street to Washington about, are you crazy, uh, will stop them from doing that. So they'll, they'll, they'll come through with some kind of minimal budget that basically keeps everything kind of stable. You think it'll actually be a budget, or you think it'll be a uh, continuing um, resolution? Yeah. I think there'll be an agreement. You know, no one will like it, but it won't be the grand bargain. The fundamental problem politically, and you know this, this is not news, one side says, we'll, we'll talk. Even Bull Simpson had, a, uh, I think, a two to one expense to, yeah. uh, they had, yeah, they had two, to one. two to one, right? No, it was, it was Maybe three, to three, one. One. three to one. Three to one. I mean, that, you know. So three dollars spending cut for every one dollar revenue raised, I believe. And one side said no more revenue. Zero, zero revenue. Zero, 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 zero. The other side said, I'm not talking to you unless you put some revenue on the table. So that's where they're starting. And they're, and they're very unlikely to bridge that because they both believe that they'll have a decision next fall when we go to the polls again, which, frankly, we're a, it's a 52-48 kind of country right now, if you kind of look at the map. So the chances are that we'll kick the can a little bit for a year, the economy will continue to recover modestly. And the, the, the place where you'll start to see the pressure is from the business community. Uh, because basically, they can't stand this uncertainty and they want clarity. Well, well, and interest rates too. So interest rates are a function of, and once those start rising, and they will, uh, at some point, we don't know when, but they will be going up. Uh, it'll get a lot harder to service our deficit. Uh, and our foreign buyers of our debt will demand a higher return for more and more debt. So actually the market forces, uh, I think, will also help drive uh, a grand bargain at some point. It will happen. It may take an election or election uh, uh, and a half, as uh, the, the, uh, the gentleman from the University of Chicago now actually is a central banker. He's the, the head of the central bank in India. Um, and, and so it'll, it'll come to, I think, some outside pressure on you know, interest rates and, and the, again, the economy 
uh, needs to have this issue at least addressed, if not resolved, uh, to really flourish, I think, we think. Just to, to um, jump on what you said, Joan, I think that we've gotten to a state now where we govern by crisis in this country. And I think Joan is absolutely right in terms of the interest rate, um, the interest rates being the next crisis or an unforeseeable crisis uh, or perhaps a foreseeable crisis. And you know, just to give a little perspective, you know, back in 1993 when we first started doing the annual report, um, our interest cost uh, to finance the debt was the third largest expense in the country. So we had, it was social security, defense, and then interest on the debt. And at the time, interest rates were in the teens, and we were spending about $240 billion financing interest on the debt. Today, we spend $240 billion to finance interest on the debt. It's the exact same number. And what's interesting about that is it, we can do that because interest rates have been so low. But how low will they be going forward? Now, luckily, we have somebody in the Fed who's going to keep those interest rates low uh, for as long as she can. But that said, there are lots of exogenous shocks that can happen that can throw that interest rate out of proportion. And uh, not only are exogenous shocks, but they're internal shocks. And by internal shocks, what I mean is the rest of uh, the world is starting to perceive us as a country that is not capable of managing our finances and may not be willing to accept our debt at the rates they currently do. So I think the biggest you know, challenge going forward is to fix the debt problem and fix our finances before that becomes a reality. Um, and the last thing I'll say is if you're interested in this topic at all, you should check out the CBO's uh, sensitivity analysis on it where they talk about you know, the possibility of getting to a situation where we pay a trillion dollars by 2020 on the interest on the debt alone. So, so if, if I can just uh, weigh in here, I mean, I think we have to start with where we are now. I mean, where we are right now is that the deficit is much lower than it was in the last couple of years and it's coming down. The Congressional Budget Office is predicting that 10 years from now, our debt to GDP ratio will be lower than it is now. Um, and the interest rates are not only lower than they've been um, at any time since the war, but if you look at what happened during the government shutdown, the markets didn't budge at all. 10-year uh, T-bills were lower um, a month, uh, uh, um, were lower after the shutdown, before the shutdown, than they were you know, a month earlier. I mean, the market completely shrugged. So what we do have right now, I mean, that, that doesn't mean that indefinitely um, that will continue, but it's very easy to do sensitivity analysis out to wazoo about what might happen with interest rates um, way into the future. What we do know right now is that we have a really remarkable situation to borrow uh, basically for free and rebuild the country, and the absolutely best and guaranteed way to close the gap between revenues and expenditures is to grow the economy. I mean, that's the absolutely surefire way to be getting back on the right path. And that's um, the opportunity we have right now is to, to reduce this output gap. So before, um, which doesn't mean that we don't have to deal with all these things in due course, but we have a very rare opportunity right now to deal with the crisis that we have right now, which is the unemployment and output gap crisis. Well, I know we just uh, have scratched the surface with this conversation. Uh, we didn't even get a chance to take too many questions from the audience. We apologize for that. But the good news is 
the conversation doesn't have to stop right now. We're actually going to have a reception uh, sponsored by Travelers, so thank you. Uh, it's going to take place right behind the forum stage. So any questions that you had that you didn't get a chance to ask or you didn't want to ask in front of a live television audience, uh, you can ask our panelists. Uh, but please join me in thanking them for coming out tonight and talking about this really important issue. And we hope that Meredith doesn't come back 20 years ago, 20 years from now, again, and finding the same conversation. <laughs>